0: Welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. So we have the lockdown exit roadmap, which the Prime Minister has released. For a document said to be led by data, not dates, there were rather a lot of dates in there. But will there be dates to remember or ones the government is forced to change? We're going to talk about Boris Johnson's plan to take the country towards what he calls a spring and summer of hope. We'll then look ahead to a big day for the Prime Minister's next-door neighbour, Rishi Sunak sets out his budget next week. Will the Chancellor, once one of the loudest voices for the economy to be opened up, be departing from Johnson's road map, or will the coordinates match up? And from there, we'll take a look at a particular type of government role, one which has been proliferating in recent years. That's commissioners, lots of them, and there's often lots more promised in manifestos. But there's no handbook for the role, no induction process, no agreed document on what they're meant to do and how. Luckily, a new IFG report is filling the gap. So we'll take a look at that. This week, I'm joined by Tom Sass, IFG Associate Director and co-author of our recent paper on how the Prime Minister could set out a roadmap. Hi, Tom. Hi, Bronwyn. Great to have you with us. And Gemma Tetlow, our Chief Economist, is here again with us as well. Hi, Gemma. Hello. And I'm delighted that we're joined as well by Ben Riley-Smith, the newly appointed political editor of the Daily Telegraph, and freshly back from a stint in Washington. Ben, great to have you with us. Thank
1: you very much. Yeah, but I uh, Just as busy here as it was in D.C., I'm afraid.
0: Well, that was quite a time to be in the U.S. What, what was the high point?
1: Well, I mean, high points from reporting were really the low points for the country. I mean, 2020 was a crazy year in U.S. politics. Um, Donald Trump was pretty much impeached twice Uh at the end, at the beginning of 2020 and the beginning of 2021, uh, you had the whole election election fallout where he was pretty much attempting to deny the result of the election, uh, and also you had those horrible scenes leading up to the inauguration, the storming of the Capitol, followed by his second impeachment, followed by um, him reluctantly handing over power. So uh, a news heavy last 12 months.
0: Well, uh, we did indeed. So welcome back to the UK and our very quiet politics, obviously, uh, in in, in comparison. Let's start with all this. Let's start with the Prime Minister's announcement on Monday um, when he set out how the country would return to a life without lockdown by the summer. Tom, last week you put together a great IFG paper which set out what a government roadmap needed to do, and you were supportive of a document that was going to be led by um, data, not dates. Which is this?
2: Yeah, so, Bronwyn, the, the rhetoric before was all about sort of data, not dates, but when the plan came out, it was much more sort of dates than data. And the government led with these very prominent dates, including a, a sort of forecast right out to the summer of a sort of Independence Day around the 21st of June, unfortunately, just after my birthday, um, but only gave a sort of vague sense of how data would feed into that. Um, so I think they're hoping that by giving some quite prominent dates, that would buy support for a more gradual approach. But But what we've seen now is the CRG sort of flipping it round and trying to cast themselves as the data driven group in Parliament, arguing, you know, what if the data is more optimistic? Should that bring these dates forward?
0: So they want a much more rapid opening up um, of the economy and and society in general. Gemma, is, is the government clear about what it's trying to do? There's been a paper from Tony Blair's Institute criticising it for pursuing many goals at the same time.
3: It is difficult. I think this version of the roadmap has some uh, improvements compared to the first roadmap that we saw last May. Um, you may remember then that the government had sort of many objectives. It had five alert levels, five tests, three phases, three steps. So I think this roadmap um, has uh, perhaps avoided being quite so confusing as the last one. But in terms of the, the objectives. The overriding goal that the roadmap sets out, which is to protect the lives and livelihoods of citizens across the four nations of the UK, is so unarguably an objective that we would all agree with uh, as to be largely unhelpful. And even below that, the sort of more detailed objectives that they've set out don't really give a hugely clear sense of how they will uh, Trade off uh, different objectives and how they will therefore interpret any changes in the data that they're looking at to change the speed of the op- reopening that they've set out.
0: So this point that Tom was making of it's very hard for anyone listening to this to make um, their own connection between the figures that we can see in terms of infections or, or, or hospitalizations or so on, and the opening up. It's very hard to, to link figures and what's going to follow.
3: Exactly. They've they've said broadly which data they're going to be looking at, but not actually what are the sort of tipping points in those measures that will cause them to think that their roadmap is either going too fast or too slowly. And presumably that's been done to allow the government to retain room for manoeuvre. But the downside of doing that is that it opens them up to pressure from political groups, including the COVID recovery group, to go quicker if the data does seem to be more positive in some sense than the government's perhaps been painting so far, and it opens them up to all sorts of sectoral lobbying as different business groups put pressure on the government to allow reopening more quickly for their sector and the government just hasn't been clear about what level of risk and what level of disease spread and hospitalizations and deaths and all those metrics um, are they comfortable with and what what levels would cause them to think actually this roadmap was a bit ambitious and we need to slow that down.
0: So Ben, what do you make of the politics of this? Has the, has the government and the Prime Minister in particular done enough to get the pressure off his, his back or has he left all kinds of hostages to fortune?
1: Well, I mean, it's an unbelievably tricky task, as as the other two just then were talking about. I think Number 10 will be pretty pleased with the reaction from a political point of view so far. There are kind of two areas of political pressure on the government. One is the Tory backbench. Boris Johnson's got a majority of about 80, which means if about 40 Tory MPs flip on the government, there's a danger of defeats. And also, of course, public opinion. On the Tory backbench, actually, the rhetoric wasn't that hard in the debate after the Prime Minister revealed his roadmap. It's also been telling in the 48 hours since we haven't seen a huge upsurge in threats to somehow try and force the government to change their plan. Part of that is the reality of the parliamentary cogs of this. Uh, they're bring it in through a statutory instrument which is just a thumbs up, thumbs down vote. So there isn't something they can attach amendments trying to change bits of the roadmap. Um, and also if you look at the papers, actually for the most part, the reaction was fairly even-handed. The Daily Mail went quite hard. The Sun went quite hard. Uh, the Telegraph quite, quite was the middle, hard.
0: Mean, quite hard. You mean what?
1: As in quite critical of the government. So the, the Daily Mail and the Sun uh, went quite hard on the idea that the roadmap needed to be, to be quicker. And then, secondly, if you look at public opinion, actually, only tiny fraction of the public think he is going to slowly. About fifteen percent, according to a poll, after the roadmap came out uh, and many more think he's going too quickly so it's a very tricky political task but I don't think number 10 will be too disappointed with how it landed
0: and it feels as if he's got his cabinet behind him now doesn't it whereas we did have some months of talking about cabinet um, differences of opinion not really clashes but certainly a um, a brigade within the cabinet and including the chancellor wanting to open up more quickly that's that's gone quiet now hasn't it
1: yes we haven't seen a lot of cabinet backbiting either in the run-up to or um, the days after the roadmap was announced. Actually, one cabinet minister I was talking to said Rishi Sunak, who had been at the forefront of pushing for uh, the econ- economic reopenings, is actually quite focused now on the issue of hospitalizations and not getting the NHS overwhelmed. Um, again, the politics is, of this are really interesting. In a year, is anybody going to remember if we opened up a month, six weeks slower than some people were calling for? Perhaps that if we go into a fourth lockdown, A lot of people are going to remember that. Um, And that would be on the government's, um, uh, you know, maybe there'll be new variants, but the government would get a significant portion of the blame for that. So I think the Tories are very careful, certainly the Tories in government, to do this gradually in the hope, as Boris Johnson says, that it's irreversible.
0: The individual that's got the worst publicity in the past week is probably Dylan the dog. (laughs) Um, uh, 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 Gemma, do, do you think there's a sense that the Treasury and the Chancellor underestimated the economic hit um, of the virus um, surging around the, the country, when they are uh, back in the summer, when they were talking about opening up,
3: I'm not sure if they necessarily underestimated the economic hit of a second surge. But it does seem that looking back at the sorts of policies they rolled out last summer, they weren't working on the basis of the the same level of risk of a second wave as other parts of government seemed to be assuming at the time i mean if you think back to the policies in the summer and particularly the eat out to help out policy that was rolled out which was deliberately encouraging people to go out socialize have meals indoors with their friends and family that now looks totally out of kilter with the idea that indoor socializing poses the greatest risk to covid transmission and the uh, The government could have supported the economy or um, tried to stimulate some kind of recovery without deliberately incentivising something um, that posed such a high risk to increasing disease transmission and stimulating a second wave. And so I think it's, it's that where the Treasury policy last year seemed at odds with the thinking that was going on elsewhere in government. And this time it will be interesting to see whether Treasury policy seems more in line with thinking elsewhere in government.
0: But Tom, take us into something that's becoming controversial. You can feel it just rising up the agenda, and that's vaccine certificates or vaccine passports. What's the government's thinking? Um, there hasn't been much public comment, but what, what, what do you think its thinking is on this?
2: No, well, the the plan uh, last week, sort of had, had a bit earlier this week. Sorry, had a bit of a a U turn in it because previously the government said they weren't going to look at this. They now say they're going to look at what they they call COVID status certificates. So that's their that sort of jargon for for passports. Um, And, you know, they're going to review the role that those could play in reopening, consider the ethical questions, the limits and so on. Michael Gove is going to go away and look at these and what Israel has done. I mean, I think the really interesting thing here is how should one person's freedom impinge on another's? It's a sort of very philosophical question. And in in particular, how do you treat people who choose not to take up the vaccine? Uh, And there's, you know, increasingly a sort of strong line, you hear it in the Tory party that says, you know that's their decision you can't let that hold the rest of society back and and actually you know using these passports more widely would nudge more people to take up the vaccine there's also quite a powerful riposte which says you know that if people don't take those up they they might already suffer multiple disadvantages they distrust the government for various reasons and actually it's it's not reasonable to to sort of lock them out of certain parts of society so i think gove has some issues to cut through there uh, around where these are appropriate and where they 're not i mean there 's there 's some pretty obvious use cases, things like care homes to get started with, but if they 're thinking about using them more widely it 's going to get tricky
0: but even that is is quite controversial, um, given that some of the groups working uh, as, as carers in care homes um really don 't don 't want them and that 's been one of the groups it seems parts less keen to take up the Ben, what what do you feel about this? I mean, I find it really fascinating. Question about people's, you know, obligations to society on one hand, and classic uh, liberal arguments about people's freedom to live their lives and control their bodies as as they want.
1: Yeah, I think there are a couple of things we can kind of say for sure about the government and where it is on this position. The first one is they have changed. A couple of weeks ago, the briefing was very clear to journalists like myself uh, in Parliament. They were open to the idea of uh, vaccine passports or certificates at the border, but they were very reluctant to do it domestically. Now in the roadmap, we have this formal review looking at whether they could do it domestically. So that is a shift. The second thing is the Tory party at the top clearly is divided on the issue and I think instinctively concerned about it. You know, this is the Tory party that hammered Blair when he bought in ID cards. Um, the idea that everybody wouldn't just have to prove their ID That somehow reveal a bit of medical information to a business uh, or employer to get something done. Instinctively, I think a lot of people are concerned about that. And the review, I think, is genuinely a question mark. Uh, As the Prime Minister said yesterday, it's going to look at um, moral and ethical, philosophical considerations as well as uh, the practical ones. last point I'd make here is the reality is that things on the ground are moving quicker than the government. So internationally if other countries won't let you in without proof of your vaccine then you're going to need to prove that you've had the vaccine in regards what the UK government does and similar domestically if companies legally are demanding you prove you have a vaccine to either use their services or be employed by them that's a bit of an open question right now then it might well happen whatever the government does so I think uh, number 10 is realizing that reality and trying to work out how to navigate it.
0: Yes, and it's interesting. And the government has not um, put its put a block on that kind of move by companies, nor have some of the unions. Uh, in, interestingly, uh, and it's going to be important where they come down on this. Jim, what where, your feeling of where this can go? Um, I mean, there are circumstances in which you know society requires uh, that people, sometimes children, have have vaccines or other things. On the other hand, we're talking not just. Um, about travel, but possibly access to state services, whether hospitals or or education?
3: I think it is a hugely difficult question to answer for the reasons that um, Tom laid out, that on the one hand, there is a clear rationale for requiring this as a way of enabling the economy and services to return to normal, and because individuals' choices have implications for other people, not just for themselves. On the other hand, um, we do not typically in this country force people to do things against their will. Um, I I think one point that will clearly be important, which is the government has so far been, been its strategy, is addressing and reassuring people about those concerns that they have the reasons that people are choosing not to take up the vaccine at the moment if some of those concerns can be addressed and therefore reduce the numbers of people who feel they don't want to have a vaccination that would ease some of this trade-off but can't be a complete solution to that
0: absolutely fascinating and i'm sure we're going to be coming back to this quite a bit over the coming weeks and months as the whole country debates this Let's move on at this point to the big parliamentary event of next week coming up. That's the budget, Uh, a context in which the government most certainly does ask people to do things that they (laughs) don't always want to do. Gemma, you wrote a great piece last week which warned that the Chancellor must not undermine the roadmap. What what did you mean by that?
3: We've already touched on it a little bit, but... What we've seen throughout uh, the last year is the huge role that tax and spending policy plays in all of our lives. And so far, the main role of tax and spending policy over the last year has been to support the economy, support businesses, support households, whilst we've been in the unprecedented situation of the government shutting down large parts of our lives. And Rishi Sinek said last March that he would do whatever it takes and Boris Johnson reiterated those sorts of words when he laid out his roadmap um, earlier this week, whatever it takes to support businesses and households until things can go back to something closer to normal. Um, So there's one role for fiscal policy um, in the budget in continuing to provide that support whilst we move through the roadmap. And so one question will be, Extent to which Rishi Sunak announces that some of the current uh, policies, like the coronavirus job retention scheme, the support for the self-employed, how far are those policies extended beyond their planned end date at the end of April um, to help uh, as the lockdown remains in place for some sectors? Um, but looking beyond that, as things start to open up, the role for tax and spending policy will shift somewhat towards. First of all, potentially trying to stimulate um, spending back as as it becomes possible for people and businesses to spend more money. Um, So do we see more sort of generalised fiscal stimulus policies? Are they along the lines of the sorts of things that we had last summer with the eat out to help out and the VAT cut for the hospitality sector? Or are they of a different form to perhaps try and incentivise activity that poses less of a risk of uh, further spikes in virus transmission. And then looking even further beyond that, there's a question of what does fiscal policy do to help the economy to adjust to any of the permanent effects of coronavirus, whether that's helping people whose jobs are never coming back to retrain and find uh, jobs elsewhere in the economy, or helping the economy to adjust to other structural shifts such as for example if, if city centres are not going to see the return of all of the office workers that they once had um, what's the role of fiscal policy in, in supporting that so that was the sense in which I meant that the Chancellor needs in next week's budget to set out policies that support that roadmap um, and I suppose in the, in the same way that we asked for the roadmap in general to be driven by a uh, data, not dates. Uh, It would be good to see the Chancellor next week kind of tying those fiscal policy measures to the state of the lockdown measures. One problem that we saw with some of the Treasury's approach last year was that they announced plans to, for example, end the, the furlough scheme at the end of October. And it took a really long time for the Treasury to Take on board the fact that actually the economy was not reopening again. It didn't make sense to end the furlough scheme at the end of October as planned, and they were quite late. It was, it was very late in the day that they announced an extension of that support.
0: Because, as you said, they, they were very, uh, they were very much set on the the plan of trying to open up the economy. Ben, how are relations between Number Ten and Number Eleven? Sunak had, you know, he had a great summer and autumn. He was very much, you know, he was all over the national press, and then with the the, um, the second wave. Um, he seems to have been really diminished, if you like.
1: Yes, I mean, a risk of sounding totally out of the loop. I mean, it seems fairly cordial from what I can tell, talking to people around it. Certainly the government comes down very heavily on any journalist suggesting there are rifts or big uh, points of difference. Uh, maybe they are and they haven't come out yet. Um, certainly last week was a really key week. And as, as Gemma was saying, I think the government also want to do that thing where the roadmap and the budget are very closely aligned. Rishi Sunak was in number 10 every day last week. Last week, they were locking in the key big tax measures of the budget as they were finally confirming all the details of the roadmap. So I think they are trying to make it a lot of step. And certainly when we're looking at what might be coming, it sounds like a lot of the big measures. Now we know the economy is going to be shut to some degree until mid-June, which is when that fourth stage of reopening kicks in in the roadmap. It sounds like a lot of the measures that were designed to help people during the lockdown are going to be extended to that point. So we think the furlough scheme, the business rates holiday, uh, the universal credit uplift, grants for uh, self-employed, we've reported will go up to April. I think the Treasury looking at that. Um, but he's got a tricky balance, the Chancellor, because on the one hand, he needs to clearly keep on propping up the economy because the government is forcing businesses to stay shuttered for months to come under this roadmap. But at the same time, when you get to 2024, the election, presumably the dividing line is going to be the Tories, who are trying to claim fiscal responsibility and bouncing the books and trying to call out Labour for big spending. And Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, has been quite interesting strategically this week as he's gone very heavily against tax rises Um, He said in PMQs on Wednesday, uh, no big tax rises is on uh, families and businesses. And I think he sees that Rishi Sunak wants to indicate or raise some taxes to try and show the Tories are in the medium term fiscally responsible. Um, So that's going to be the dynamic that plays out. Think it looks like Keir Thomas so is trying to get with the Tory backbenchers and um, uh, outflank the Tories on tax rises.
0: Which is an interesting tactic. I mean he's, he's found it hard to counter the government uh, on much of this other than saying that Labour would have done things sooner and better. Um, and it's interesting as you said that he's trying to get ahead of what he presumes uh, the Chancellor is going to say sort of six months from now uh, as opposed to next week um, which we'll come on to in a second. But uh, Tom you, you were writing for us recently about the Treasury's efforts to counter the um, uh, the criticism that is now building against uh, the Summers eat out to help out and you weren't very impressed.
2: Yeah well it's interesting and I've just seen a, a story today that the Treasury is considering bringing the scheme back as part of its uh, you know sort of boosting the recovery again this time round. I mean what they briefed out two or three weeks ago was I thought a pretty weak effort to rubbish some of the quite good research um, which is sort of linked you know uh, prevalence of, of eat out to help out with the sort of rising COVID cases, and they didn't publish the, the data or analysis behind that. Uh, but the reason I, I wasn't impressed was also, I think it sort of suggested a bit more of a broader lack of reflection. One of the quotes they put out was in response to sort of questions about the Treasury's position on lifting lockdown this time around, saying, you know, Rishi's where he has been throughout the crisis in terms of arguing for sort of return to economic activity more quickly. And I think that suggests that there's actually a bit of a lack of learning there, because a lot of people would say that, you you know, Sunak was on precisely the wrong side of the argument in terms of arguing for an approach that actually secured worse health outcomes, but also worse economic outcomes, because the lockdowns had to be put in place for much longer. Um, So it's interesting. I I think the Treasury is trying to sort of spin it as, you know, they were right and they were just let down by poor contract tracing. But we might argue for a bit more reflection.
0: Yes. Gemma, what do you make of the point that Ben was making about Labour trying to get in ahead of um, conservative tax rises that have yet to be announced and very possibly not being announced next week?
3: Yes, it was interesting to hear Keir Starmer say that um, he would
0: oppose tax rises.
3: I, I think there is a important uh, distinction to draw between the extent to which people are saying there shouldn't be tax rises now um, because the economy is weak and tax rises would um, hamper the recovery and the extent to which, and I'm not sure from Kirsten um, statement this week, the extent to which people are opposing tax rises ever. Um, and I think if we, if we come out of COVID feeling that the public want more spending on public services to make them more resilient and potentially more spending on universal credit, um, as the debate at the moment seems to be suggesting, that does really pose both the government and the Labour opposition with a question of, well, if you want more spending, then where's the money coming from to pay for that? Um, so I I think there's two separate questions about are, are people opposing tax rises immediately versus are people opposing tax rises ever in the future?
0: And, and that, that could pose some problems for Keir Starmer, as you said, if his party, um, as we presume it does, wants to argue for a much stronger public services coming out of this. Um, Gemma, finally, I, I guess um, it's unfair to ask you to predict what rabbits might come out of the hats that Rishi Sunak doesn't exactly wear but um but all the same uh, any rabbits next week
3: um I have to say I don't um, I don't know what rabbits to predict but I would be very surprised if there isn't something in the budget that hasn't been uh, fully briefed out in advance chancellors always like to have something that will um command the, the news story
0: for them on the day even these days when it feels like the whole of the budget is chewed over the week beforehand but we'll look forward to that many thanks for that Okay, let's leave COVID behind. What an amazing thought. For this podcast, at any rate, because I want to turn to a new IFG report um, out on Thursday about the role of government commissioners. There are loads of them, but who are they, what do they do, and how do they make a difference? The report's author, Tim Durrant, IFG Associate Director, joins us now. Hi, Tim.
4: Hi, Roman. Hi, everyone.
0: Okay, Tim, um, just tell us the basics. What is a government commissioner?
4: So these are these are people uh, of individuals who are appointed to represent a specific group. So the first one in the UK was when the Welsh government appointed um a children's commissioner in the early 2000s but since then there've been various ones appointed in in the devolved nations and and who work for the or work to the UK government so we have Uh, children's commissioners in England, Scotland and Wales, we have victims commissioner, we have the independent anti-slavery commissioner, they cover a whole host of issues and they're often appointed after a scandal or after something is deemed to have gone wrong in in public services. What do they do? Their idea generally is that they represent groups that are uh, less able to make their voices heard in the corridors of power, so for example as I say they started with children and the idea being that these people um, represent the voices and concerns of children to policymakers, to, to, to ministers, and to, to civil servants, um, and also, you know, they have they they use research and they talk to individuals in these groups to find out what matters to them and how government policy can be better geared to supporting and helping those those underrepresented groups.
0: Why are we talking about this now?
4: Well, so you'll remember that a couple of years ago, um, the the Home Office deported uh, British citizens um, in in the Windrush scandal, and. After that, uh, Wendy Williams undertook a review into the Home Office and how how uh, this uh, situation had come about. And one of her key recommendations was that there should be a migrants commissioner, so someone who is appointed to represent the voice and concerns of migrants in the UK to the government to ensure that uh, those those concerns are taken into account for in policy making.
0: And Uh, these migrants who are in, or does it include asylum seekers?
4: So, what this is one of the questions because the Home Office have said that they accept the recommendation, but there's no certainty as to exactly what this person's remit or scope will be. Uh, If you talk to to groups who work with migrants, they're very keen that this person has has the ability to represent anyone who is going through the migration process, so asylum seekers, refugees, economic migrants, all different types of of people who've moved to this country. Uh, But we are yet to see exactly what this person will be responsible for.
0: So would you say that this this, um, proposed commissioner is more controversial than some of the ones we've had in the past?
4: I think it's definitely a more difficult role because if if you compare to for example children or or victims of crime then the government is on their side the government wants to help children the government wants to help victims of crime but a lot of the problems that migrants face in the UK are of course a result of government policy and 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 the gov- you know the hostile environment and the making things difficult for people uh, to come to this country uh, and of course, bearing down on my, on net migration overall has been a policy of, of successive governments for a number of years now. So this person has a very difficult role if they are to be effective in, in uh, supporting migrants and, and making their voices heard in the corridors of power, um, while also working for the government. It's going to be a difficult, uh, difficult balancing act.
0: Because they might be challenging not only government policy, but a particularly a- a controversial area of government policy.
4: Exactly, exactly. Exactly. And- often you know to be to be to have impact these people you know it's helpful for them to have high profiles to appear in front of parliamentary select committees to to make interventions in the media but if they are spending a lot of their time criticizing the government then ultimately if the government has established this role then they could just shut it down again so right. it's the kind of thing
0: you think a home secretary might absolutely loathe yeah ben, ben what do you make of this
4: uh well
1: I, i'm just thinking about why governments sometimes reach for commissioners as a uh, tool for various issues. I think Tim touched on one of the big reasons there is during a scandal, there is an outcry for what is the government going to do? What are they going to change? And a commissioner seems to me is quite a handy way to promise something that sounds meaty, but actually isn't a vast, dramatic change. So it's not a huge policy change. It's effectively saying we'll, we'll appoint someone to have a think about this. But it does seem to carry the weight during a political scandal of something that um, could change and does have uh, a real emphasis to it. So I think that's one of the reasons governments quite often reach for them. Uh, I think if I was being less cynical, uh, sometimes ministers genuinely do have causes that they passionately believe in. And having someone slightly at arm's length from government to focus so much of their time on it um, could help them. The one that jumps out is the independent anti Slavery Commissioner. Theresa May, when she was Home Secretary, was passionate about trying to tackle modern slavery. It's probably one of the four or five policies she's best known for, even having been in number 10. And so possibly that role was a genuine attempt to work out the best ways to tackle that problem. Uh, And then the third reason that just comes to mind is, uh, again, possibly being more cynical, is virtue signaling. Um, I don't know how many different czars or slightly hands-off government roles we've had for cutting red tape. David Cameron used to put a lot of emphasis on it. Um, We're going around that again. Now we're outside of Brexit. Uh, You know, it's the great uh, calling card for Tories that uh, they will cut red tape. um, And it's uh, an easy headline um, to create a czar to look into that or to propose policies. It doesn't mean the government ever has to actually adopt them, uh, but it keeps some right leaning newspapers on side.
0: I don't know that it's cynical to ask whether these people are just a symbol, as they absolutely can be. Tom, what about you? Would you like to see a government commissioner appointed somewhere? And where, where would that be?
2: Yeah, I think it's a it's a really interesting report Tim's put together. And if I was to make a slightly shameless plug for an area I've worked on with a bit of a twist, I think there's a huge sort of groundswell of enthusiasm, interest, concern about climate and the environment among young people and children um and i notice in tim's report that he talks about sort of this being a good mechanism for sort of underrepresented groups and of course there's these really tricky questions about you know how quickly we should reduce our emissions but also how much we as a generation should pay for that versus future generations so i think perhaps some sort of commissioner for for future generations on climate could be an interesting model
0: Oh, I see. Specifically for future generations, because I was—I was thinking as you were talking. Look, this is a vast area of government policy. Finally, and you—you um, you can't have a commissioner in charge of that. But you—you you mean representing um, younger generations in this, in terms of the balance of who pays for it all?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, we—we we saw actually some of the enthusiasm that came through in the sort of school climate strikes and things like that did seem to have an effect on some of the politics around climate change. It's much more difficult for politicians to stand up and um, accuse young children or or even people like Greta Thunberg because they just make themselves look look silly. Um, But I think there's not necessarily a sort of formal mechanism for thinking about those people's, those young people's concerns
4: on that issue.
0: So, Tim, when might we see a migrants commissioner?
4: Well, this is, this is the million-dollar question. So the Home Office have committed to taking forward all of Wendy Williams' recommendations, including this one, but beyond that, we do not know. So it may be, be some time. May, this, this may be gathering dust somewhere in the Home Office for a while yet.
0: Some time can be a long time, as we know. Well, we would hold our breath on that, but thank you very much indeed for that. So that's it for this edition of Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Gemma Tetlow, Tom Sass, Tim Durrett, and especially to Ben Riley-Smith. Very good to have you back in Westminster, Ben. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. We've got great new recordings there for you. My discussion with Tony Blair on coronavirus and the government's handling of it. An interview with the Scottish Conservative leader, Douglas Ross, and many others. You can listen to all our podcasts at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and do leave us a review. You can check out all our work as well, including Tim's paper at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. Until then, let's hope the data delivers and that the dates in March, spring and summer are ones to remember. See you next week.